0: John chapter 5, verses 16 to 23. You know, for whatever reason, uh, we as human beings have this kind of strange fascination with uh, the private worlds of important or significant or famous people. Uh, you, you know, when, when we see that someone is accomplished or they're famous or they're influential, they, they're at, at one one hand we're, we feel like we know them, but in the other sense, we don't know them because they're sort of up there and beyond us. And so we're, we're kind of intrigued, you know, what, what makes people like that tick? What is their life like? And, and we're interested in their backstory and in their private worlds. Um, sometimes it's it's pretty base, you know, sometimes we get interested in... A-list celebrities and actors, and, you know, there's whole magazines and TV shows to find out, you know, who is dating who, and who went on what vacation where, and what did they wear, or what didn't they wear, and uh, what is going on with Brad and Angelina? I mean, you know, are they, are they in this or not, and, and we, we kind of get caught up in that, and we like to say that we don't, but, you know, we listen a little bit when that's on the radio. Sometimes it's a little more noble. Maybe it's somebody uh, who has accomplished great things. Maybe it's a business person who we admire their work and their accomplishments, or an athlete, or, or just somebody like that, and, and we want to know about them. You know, what makes a person like that tick? I remember when the Super Bowl was on, there were these little vignettes about uh, Eli and Peyton Manning, and their I know you guys really wouldn't care about this, but uh, you know, their relationship to each other as brothers and and, you know, what's it like to have two brothers who are both successful NFL quarterbacks? And how does their relationship to each other affect their, their game in the public life? Uh, or maybe if you're a political junkie, you, you track these, you know, tell-all books where somebody who was a staffer in the White House uh, lets everybody know what, what it's really like behind the scenes working with the first family and, and what the dynamics really are between them. Well... You're going to love this text today, John, because this is a behind-the-scene glimpse of a private world, an inaccessible world to us, where we get to see what's really going on behind the scenes, but it's not some tawdry, juicy Hollywood tale, some, some backstory like that. On the contrary, the text you're about to study today is so, it's so precious and beautiful it's like a treasure it's an honor to read this text because today we are learning about the secret world the private life the home life if you will of god himself what it's like behind the scenes for god to be god look at john chapter 5 verses 16 to 23 let me read the text So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what He sees His Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all He does. Yes, to your amazement, He will show Him even greater things than these. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. The Gospel of John, probably as much as, if not more than any other book in the Bible, gives us these incredible glimpses into the life of God Himself within the Trinity. Probably more than any other book, uh, perhaps we see inside how God is and, and what His life is like within the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here's one of these texts where, where it's like the veil is pulled away. And, you know, it's a precious text and an insight. Uh, you, you know, as I was studying this and I was, I was getting more and more into it, 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 at a certain point during my studies for the sermon, I, I felt like, you know, I need to take off my shoes. It's, I'm on holy ground. I was at home. My shoes were already off. Maybe I should take my socks off. I don't know. It's like... Something needs to be done to acknowledge that the, the holiness of who God is in his revelation here, but what 's ironic is that when Jesus originally spoke these words about himself, his audience had an, a very negative reaction that when they first heard this, they weren 't like "Wow let 's take off our shoes." They were like, "Wow let 's pick up stones and kill him." You know How, how dare he say these things so it 's interesting that God gives us this revelation of Himself in a context of conflict, rejection, and hostility. So look at the conflict. That's in verses 16 to 18. It's kind of a spillover of the sermon we heard last Sunday. It says, verse 16, So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted Him. We saw this last Sunday. Pastor Godwin preached on verses 1 to 15. And, and he was talking about how um, you know, Jesus had healed this man on the Sabbath, And he told the man, get your mat, pick it up, and go home. And and so he he was violating the Sabbath. He was doing work on the Sabbath. And, you know, the fourth commandment is honor the Sabbath day, keep it holy. You should do no work on the Sabbath. Fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments. Jesus does work. He says, hey, you, I'm going to heal you. He heals him. Get your mat, go home. Jesus tells the other guy to work, too. He's got to pick up a mat and walk. That's work. He's carrying something somewhere. So, you know, this is driving... The Jews, the, the religious ones, the, the Pharisees, crazy. And so they start harassing him and persecuting him. It's like, you know, think about it from their perspective. Jesus, we're confused. On the one hand, you act like you're a prophet speaking for God. On the one hand, you do miracles. But on the other hand, you break God's law. And that doesn't jive, okay? You're talking the talk, Jesus, but you're not walking the walk. You're pretending to be a religious somebody but you're breaking one of the Ten Commandments. And if you're really from God, I don't think you'd be flaunting the Ten Commandments in order to prove that you're something. And so, so there's this pushback and the static that he was getting. It was harassment. Look at Jesus' response. It, it's so amazing. Jesus answers them by basically, you know, the, the way he deals with this little fire is he just dumps gasoline on it. He's like, all right, let me tell you something else This is going to really blow your mind. So look at verse 17. Jesus said to them, My father's always at His work to this very day, and I too am working. Hmm. And they're like, what did you say? I mean, just break that down. My Father to this day is always at work. There was a theological debate among rabbis. This is kind of funny, but among the rabbis in, in Jesus' day when the Bible was written, there was a theological debate about God and work. And the question was, does God do work on the Sabbath? And the rabbis debated debated it. The answer they came up with was yes. Because if God didn't do work on the Sabbath, the universe would go poof. (laughs) So somebody has to be working to hold the universe together. So that led the rabbis to a second question. Okay, is God breaking the fourth commandment? Because he's working on the Sabbath. So God told us not to work on the Sabbath. Is he breaking the commandment? The answer they came up with is no, he's not breaking the fourth commandment because on the one hand, he's not leaving his home. He's not traveling about. It. He's made the universe. This is kind of the, the rabbinic logic. It's, it's really interesting. But the, you know, this is the home he made. And the, one of the other tests for doing work was you're not allowed to lift an object higher than yourself or heavier than yourself. And it was like, well, you know, God hasn't lifted anything above Himself. He's God. This is easy. It's not even work for Him. So, so the answer was yes. God is always at work, and He's not violating the Sabbath by doing it. And so that first part of what Jesus says. Would have been a a check in the rabbinic orthodoxy column. Yes, Jesus says God does work all the time. We agree with that. We've thought that through. We agree. This is where the gasoline comes in. Jesus says, So, you know, I'm working too. What? It's as if Jesus is saying, The logic you're using to affirm God's work all the time is the logic I shall now apply to myself. I shall now do work too because my Father does work. And that is just so over the top. And so, verse, for, verse 18, for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill Him. For, why would they kill Him? Because He's blaspheming. He's saying things about Himself that only apply to God. Look, look what it says. He's blaspheming. Because He was calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. And of course, in the Bible, there is one God. This is not Greek mythology. There's not Mount Olympus with a bunch of gods having like a Jersey Shore drama thing going on among them. Yeah, you know, that's that's Greek mythology. We're, we're the faithful people of God. We know that there is one God, monotheism. And here's Jesus saying things that make him equal to God, like he's the son of God, like Zeus had a son, Apollo. You know, what is this he's talking about? This is blasphemy. We need to kill him because that's what the Bible says you do with blasphemers in Israel. So they were just following the Word. They were doing what they thought they were supposed to do. Well, they thought anyway. And it is in that context of hostility and conflict and resistance that Jesus so graciously in verses 19 to 23 gives us this incredible sneak peek into the secret life of God, which is so amazing that that God responds to our rejection, our unbelief, and our hostility with merciful self-revelation. That that Jesus didn't say, look, you guys don't dig this. I'm out of here. No, he's like, no, let me tell you more. I know you're, you're not happy, but I'm here to save, and I'm here to tell you who God is. And so he meets our unbelief with even greater grace and even greater explanations of what he's doing and why he's doing it so that those who are his might respond and believe. So what you have in verses 19 to 23 is, is you have this idea that Jesus you know, is unified with the Father somehow, that Je- the Father and Son are one, and, and it's just kind of expanded out like an accordion. It's stretched out, and, and we get these these fuller glimpses, still glimpses, but pictures of the relationship between Jesus and the Father. And there are four of them specifically in verses 19 to 23, very clearly marked grammatically in Greek. There's these four things that that Jesus wants to say about his relationship to the Father. So what I want to do is kind of take off our shoes and linger here in some holy ground. And just take some time to hear what Jesus wants to tell us about the hidden life of God among God's self. And to see what it's like being God behind the scenes. And we get this incredible revelation. So the first one is in verse 19. Here's the first of the four. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing by Himself He can only do what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So look, guys, when I say that that I'm, you know, equal with God, I'm not saying it like Greek mythology, where there's lots of different gods. You know, Jesus does not deny monotheism. He's still a monotheist. There's one God. But he's saying what you don't understand is that within one God, there's Father and Son. And And what I do as the Son is not some independent thing as a different being. I I am perfectly submitted to the Father. That The Son is in complete, perfect, not-missing-a-beat harmony and melody with the Father. He just is perfectly there with Him. He's submitted to Him. Whatever I see the Father doing is what I do. Some scholars have pointed out that there's probably some kind of uh, potentially apprenticeship language here. You know, whatever I see, the, the son sees the father doing, that's what he does. Um, y- you know, in, in the ancient world, how did, a, how did a young man take on a certain profession? You know, in the ancient world, you didn't go to college and then pick a major and then based on your major try to get into the field of your choice, that what you did was your dad was a carpenter, you were a carpenter. And you from a young age, before you even knew what was happening, you were getting trained for carpentry. And your dad would be working the plane or working the tool and and you'd be fiddling around. He'd be like, No, son, hold it like that. No, use your a little not less pressure. There you go, right? That's with the wrist. That's good. Good job. Yeah, look at those shavings. See how thin they are? That's good. You know, and okay, let's try this. Hammer and nail. Oh, sorry, you hit your thumb and you know, and so the son is just apprenticing under his father. He's seeing what the father is doing and he's imitating dad. And and that's how the trades were passed on. And, and so people just followed in their fathers' trades, one after another. And so there could be some of that kind of cultural background in Jesus' language here, perhaps, that, Jesus, but this is the point. He says, "I only do what the Father's doing. I, I don't take things in my own initiative. I obey the Father." So the first thing we see is that within God, there is a father-son relationship. Within the one God, there's a father and son, and that son is perfectly submitted to the Father. There is within God's self a holy hierarchy. There is within God a holy hierarchy. And that sounds funny to us because we think hierarchies are kind of negative things. It's probably because every hierarchy we've ever experienced has been tainted, ruined, abused, twisted, bent somehow. That's that's how we've experienced the use of power between people, but within God there is the beautiful God designed hierarchy where the son only does what the father is doing, is completely in line with the father, loves the father. He he's the perfect son. Father, your kids are so good. Your son is so well behaved. I know he just only does what I tell him to do. He's a great kid, perfect kid. He's only doing what I tell him to do. In fact, look at what Jesus says. He says, because whatever the father does, the son does also. He perfectly imitates me. You know, the son does what the father does. That's how, it's how the father-son, the parent-child relationships work. Kids imitate their parents. Um, I, I was at a, a swim meet a couple weeks ago with my son up in Vermont. My son was swimming, and um, between one of the races, he was up with me in the bleachers, and we were watching... Uh, this this little family in front of us, and it was a mom and a dad, and they had like a this little guy he was probably like three, three and a half, four, or something. And this little kid just had the, all the bleachers in stitches, because what he was, what he would do is when his sister would swim, um, and I forget the girl's name, I wish I remembered it for the story, but l- we'll just say her name's Lucy. When, when Lucy would swim, he would he would grab the bar in front of him on the on the bleachers, and his whole body would contort, and he would go, "Go, Lucy!" It was like he was vomiting. Go, Lucy! It was that, like, violent, these body jerks. And it was so loud. You know, like, sometimes those little kids who are just loud. This is one of those loud kids. And you see the veins on his neck, and his face would turn red. And, and he'd be going, Go, Lucy! And all the, you know, everyone around us was like, oh, you know, and my son and I are nudging each other. Well, a couple races later, the dad got into it. Go Lucy! (laughs) And you could you could see the little boy. His dad would yell, and the little boy would go, "Look at his dad." Go Lucy! Go Lucy! Go Lucy! (laughs) It's really scary being a parent. Um, (laughs) Is man, your kids just do stuff that you do. You know, sometimes my wife and I'll be like, "What?" Why did they do that? You know, and I'll be like, I don't know. They kind of sounded like you right there, honey. It was a little, <laughs> sound familiar to me. Um, you know, why do they say that? Why do they use that tone? Why? Well, that's, that's how we are. And they pick things up. And, you know, they're designed to be that way. It's it kind of, you know, it's, it's beautiful to think of this little three-year-old boy for whom his dad is the whole world. He just worships His dad. He's so just in awe of his dad that if his dad is yelling for Lucy, he's going to imitate it exactly. And this is the relationship of the Son of God to God the Father. He is completely enamored with his Father. His Father, the sun rises and sets on the Father's glory. Jesus loves the Father. Jesus loves the Father far more than he loves you. And think how much he loves you. He died for you. But the reason he loves you is because he loves the Father. His love for me is is an overflow of his desire to see the Father glorified and to demonstrate the Father's love. So even his love for me is, is an effect. It is grounded in the fact that above all else, more than anything else, the Son is just in awe of his dad And he loves the Father. And so he's like, I only do what he's doing because I don't see anything else. I love the Father. And the Father reciprocates. Number two, verse 20. The Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these father loves the son shows how, how does the son know what the father's doing well because the father shows it to him why the father loves the son so it's reciprocated the son is is completely enraptured with the father and the father's glory and the father's greatest delight god the father's favorite thing to do is to look into the face of his son god's favorite thing is jesus As they just look at each other and delight in each other's glory. You know, if there is a God and that God is perfect and good and that God is committed to the best things, then God has to be Trinitarian. He has to be Trinitarian. If He's not Trinitarian, He's not really that great of a God. Because If God is the greatest, best, most perfect being, then that means his happiness and affections must be focused on the very best thing there is, which is God. (laughs) So that means God has to be both the one who is is delighting in the best thing, and God is also the best thing that's being delighted in. So God, in, in enjoying something to the highest and fullest, Ultimately, God needs to be both the the subject and the object of the delight. The Father, to use human language, delights in the Son in whom He sees the Father's likeness. So within God, there there is this delight of Father and Son and Son toward Father where God is fully delighting in God completely. And not only that, but the, the joy between them The kind of delight, the quality of of enjoyment and love they have is so strong and so powerful. The spirit between them must be holy and divine. In fact, for God to truly love God as as great as is deserved, the love itself must be God. (laughs) And so there is this incredible mystery within God that God's ultimate happiness is God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this perfect, infinite, joyous dance of delight and worship as Father and Son love and honor one another with the strength of God, which is the Holy Spirit between them. And so God has never been bored. God has never been sad. God doesn't have bad days like we do. God doesn't get up on the wrong side of the bed. God... God is happy and full and complete, delighting in Himself. The Father loves the Son. The Son honors the Father. The Father loves the Son. And here's one of the results. Verse 20, He shows Him all He does. Complete disclosure between Father and Son. Nothing held back. No secrets. No skeletons in the closet. Family skeletons that the father doesn't want to tell the son about. No bad son behavior that the son is hiding from the father. Father and son completely disclosed to each other. No elephants in the room. Family issues that everyone knows are there but there's no one to talk about. Everything is open between them. The Father trusts the Son. This Son is so good, the Father's going to show Him everything. He doesn't have to hedge His bets at all. There's no unexpressed words that, oh, I wish I would have said that to my dad. Oh, I wish I would have said that to my son. There's none of that. Everything is revealed to the Son. All that the Father does, Jesus says, I see. Isn't that so beautiful? You know, even the... uh, the holiest saint who's ever lived. I don't know who it is. It's not me. Somebody. Even the holiest saint who's ever lived, even the the most highly evolved Christian, even the most um, sincere, devout man or woman of God who has perhaps attained the highest levels of intimacy with God, whoever that is, I don't know. Maybe Moses, maybe someone else. We don't even know. You know, the, the person whose feet have trod the, the, the highest summits of holiness in this life, that person, whoever that person is, has only seen like a grain of sand of who God is. But the Son can say, I've seen it all. <laughs> I've seen it all. The f- I've seen everything. He shows me everything. That's how I know what to do. Because He shows me. It's amazing. And he says, yes, even to your amazement, he will show greater things than these. You thought that healing was cool that I'm doing on the Sabbath? I guess you don't think it's cool, but you you saw that? I mean, even greater things are coming. He's going to show me greater things. Like what? Well, verse 21. Here's an example of the greater things. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. So, number one, the Son honors the Father and perfectly submits to Him. Number two, the the Father loves the Son and reveals everything to Him that He's doing so that the Son can participate. Number three, one of those things is, verse 21, just as the Father raises the dead and gives life, the Son raises the dead and gives life to whom He's pleased to give it. Here's another gasoline on the fire statement. This is another statement that when Jesus said this would have been like another jug of gas on the fire. Because within a biblical worldview, if you're looking at life and interpreting life through the lens of the Bible, there is only one person who gives life to the dead. And that's God. He's the only guy in that category, biblically speaking. Check this verse out, I love it. Put a bookmark here in John 5. Go back to Deuteronomy Chapter 32, it's on page 204 if you're using a pew Bible. It's the fifth book of the Bible. Deuteronomy 32. Verse 39, here's the, the song of Moses. Deuteronomy 32, 39. The song of Moses that God told Moses to sing. And here's this incredible theological bombshell that's dropped in verse 39. You could do a whole sermon on this this verse. It's amazing. But look what he says in verse 39. God says, see now, I myself am he. That's an I am statement. I am. I'm he. There is no God beside me. There's not a whole bunch of gods. All those gods the Canaanites worship, those aren't really gods. You know, all the gods they worship in India and all those temples, those aren't God's. All the gods you think are gods, they're not gods, it's just me. I'm the only God. I put to death, here's one, of the, here's one of his calling cards is God, I put to death and I bring to life. I love the order, death, life. Not life, death. Yeah, anyway, that happens all the time. But God, it's death, life. I can do it that way too. That's, that's a, a mark of God the only true God. And so you go back to John 5 and here's Jesus going, yep, the Father gives life to the dead and the Son also gives life to whom He's pleased to give it. so here's the Father now not only revealing Himself to the Son, but empowering the Son to share in His divine ministry with Him. You know, we had that memorial service yesterday for... um, our dear sister Barbara Geary. Some of you know her. Member of this church for many years. Member of Park Street. Just one of those like super Christian women. Who, who you just think like how did you get like this? How, how, how did you come so loving? How did you care about so many people? I, I, incredible Christian woman that uh, so many people who knew her say she was like a mother to me. And you hear that so many times from so many people. It's, it's amazing. This woman so full of life and vitality. And then Yesterday, th- that's how I've always known her. And, and then yesterday, you're standing by a box. And you know her body's in the box. And they're going to put that box under the earth. And it's, it's like so much life has just been ended. And it, it's so strange to think of, of death and the power of death. And there's no fix. The scientists can't fix death. Scientists never will fix death. It's as Shakespeare said, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. It's a one-way thing. Except when God is involved. Because God can raise the dead. And so as you stand there at the grave of a Christian, you just think there is Jesus. This is our only hope now. You know, when someone dies, they can tell you, oh, they'll live on in your memory. And yeah, that's true, but that doesn't... I'm missing something. My hope is is in Jesus who's going to raise her. You know, that gets me excited that God can raise the dead. And Jesus says, I raise the dead. And he not only raises the physical dead, he raises those of us who are spiritually dead. Every Christian has had the experience of being raised spiritually by God's power. I used to be this way, but then I met Jesus and now I'm this way. And the only explanation is God did something to me. I've been raised. And God can raise you. You go, I don't know. Can God fix me? Can God forgive me? Can God change me? Can God make me into a Barber Geary someday? Yes, because he raises the dead. This is what he does. He imparts life to people like us. And then, of course, in verse 21, there's that emphasis on God's sovereignty, which uh, God's sovereignty is just shot through the Gospel of John. We will see this again and again and again. That God is ultimately the one who chooses whom he will save. You know, John chapter 3, the wind blows where it wills. John chapter 5, the Son gives life to whom he wills. God is, is sovereign. Jesus is sovereign. So again, Jesus is saying things about himself that are just true of the Father. And of God. That he is sovereign. That he gives life. But not only life, look at the last one. Here's the fourth one. The final one. Verse 22, moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son. So you see the progression? The son submits to the father, because that's what sons do, good, obedient sons. The father loves the son and shows him everything. The father includes him in his work. And then on the final day, the judgment day, the father gives the son the work. It's like the family business just got handed off. You know, it's always a tricky thing. Can my son really do this? Is he going to mess up this business I built? No worries for God. The son, you get it all. You are going to be the judge and the king of the universe. I I entrust it all to you. The father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son. And so the son... Humbles Himself before the Father. And the Father lifts up the Son higher. Gives Him a name above every name to the highest place. I just love this relationship between them. It's so mind-blowingly beautiful. And the Father says the Son is going to judge. Someday we will stand before the judgment throne of God. Someday we will be called to account for everything. Everything. Someday we'll have to answer for our lives. And when we stand before that judgment throne, what you will not see on the judgment throne is a a warm, soft light at the end of the tunnel that makes you feel peaceful. What you see on that judgment throne will not be the higher power of your determination. You will not see Buddha on the judgment throne with legs crossed and hands out and that kind of knowing smile on his eyes-closed face. You will not find Allah on the judgment throne. You won't even find God the Father. You will find Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who is the Son of God on the throne. Because the Father will say, Son, take it from here. The one whom the world crucified is the one who will judge the world. The one who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world when we see Him again will be the royal lion who judges and reigns and rules. The one who the last time the world really saw Him was naked and bleeding and weak and humiliated will now be victorious and burning and clothed, clothed in the victor's gowns and with the royal crown on His head. And His word will be law. And what he says, so shall it be. His judgments will be final. No appeals. He's the king and the judge. <sighs> what do you do with this? Besides just take off your shoes and worship this, this God? Well, here's what you do. Verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. We cannot get around Jesus. Jesus is one with the Father, and so you can't get to God without the Son. And if you try to go around the Son, you actually don't get to the Father. You have to honor the Son to honor the Father, because it's a package deal with these two and these three, the Holy Spirit as well. So honor, honor the Son. Are we dishonoring the Son? You know, go back to verses 16 through 18, there's dishonoring. Rejecting him, harassing him, not believing who he says he is, you know, believing that Jesus is pretty good or he's good for some people or he helps in some cases, but other people have different ways to God. That's dishonoring to the Son because the Son is the one to whom all is given. So if we want to honor the Father, if we want to know God, if we want to be spiritual, we have to keep honoring Christ and looking to Him. There is a Savior. His name is Jesus. And it's all in His hands. And even for those of us who are Christians, it's just so important to keep honoring Jesus. I just pray that our church will stay very Jesus-centered. That we'll stay very Christocentric, if you want to use theological language that christ will be at the center of our preaching and teaching and the way we love each other and the way we relate to each other and when we cry on each other's shoulders and we struggle with things that that's always where we're pointing each other to as a, as we kind of limp along as this body of believers when we struggle with sin when we're wrestling with sin in our lives and we get frustrated with ourselves you know we, we definitely are the children of god make no mistake about it. If you're a Christian, if you've put your faith in Jesus, you've become a child of God. But you know, the other thing is we're we're kind of in the ugly duckling phase of being God's children. Like some days we're going, someday we're going to be a beautiful swan, but right now, make no mistake, it's very ugly duckling right now. And that's where we're at in our spiritual development. This side of, of glory is this kind of awkward growth where we are the children of God, but we're not quite living it. And it's so frustrating. I remember talking to a Christian man once who said to me, uh, he said, you know, Jeremy, I don't even like being called a Christian. I don't even use that term of myself because I'm so disgusted at the gap between the term Christian, a Christ-like one, and who I really am. He says, I don't don't even want to tell people I'm a Christian because it's just embarrassing to me that that I would take that name upon myself. And, you know, I, I think, Hey, you are a Christian. You are in Christ. But I understand that too, that tension. And when we find ourselves discouraged at where we're at in our development, we need to focus back on the Son of God. Not on ourselves. We need to look to Him because it's in Him that His glory changes us. And it's as we rely upon Him that His loving Holy Spirit brings us along. And it's as we look at Him, you, know, you see Jesus, He's looking at the Father. So He's going to keep us pointing toward God. So honoring the, fa- or honoring the Son is not just something you do to become a Christian. It's kind of the, the whole purpose of the Christian life. And someday it will be all eternity to love and savor the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Does this just blow your mind that this incredible loving worship, delight, and obedience between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is something that they are opening up to welcome us into? Forever. This is our future too. I don't even know what that means. (laughs) It's just too big. But I thank God and I pray that He would give us the grace to honor the Son, that maybe some of these little glimpses would hook us and pull us further and closer to what God has in store. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us a, a measure of grace to be able to honor you. Jesus, we pray we'd be captivated by you, that we'd be enamored of you, that this world and the best it has to offer would just seem like a, a, a toy in a cereal box compared to the treasure that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, give us great joy in you. Give us hope in you. I pray, Lord, that we'd honor you. I pray that you would continue to put more honor for Christ in our hearts. We pray that this would always be a church that honors you, not just in what's preached from the pulpit, but in how we treat each other and how we love each other. We pray, Lord, that wherever we go in this church, we'd find Jesus on our lips, that Christ would be lifted up. Lord, I pray for the South Shore of Boston. We we just beg you, Lord Jesus, to extend your, your revelation to people around us. There are just so many people who don't honor you and don't even know they're supposed to. Lord, you had mercy on Nineveh when Jonah preached there. God, would you have mercy on the South Shore and just open the eyes of people that we love? And Lord, make us courageous not just to pray, but to speak up. And to say not just you need to come to church, but help us to tell people they need to meet Jesus and point people to the Savior. We ask this in His name. Amen.